Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from the Free Grace Broadcaster. It's the winter of 2018. The topic for this quarterly this time is adoption. You can get the whole thing yourself by just sending an email to chapel at mountzion.org. They will send you this booklet every quarter and you'll be blessed with it. Today it's John Murray who lived from 1898 to 1975, a more recent guy, a Presbyterian theologian and author. Born in Bad Bay near Bonar Bridge, Sutherland County in Scotland. John Murray. Adoption, he says, is an act of God's grace, distinct from and additional to the other acts of grace involved in the application of redemption. It might seem quite unnecessary to say this. Does not the term itself and the specific meaning that attaches to it clearly imply its distinctiveness? Yet it is not superfluous to emphasize the fact that it is a distinct act carrying with it its own peculiar privileges. It is particularly important to remember that it is not the same as justification or regeneration. Too frequently it has been regarded as simply an aspect of justification or as another way of stating the privilege conferred by regeneration. But it's much more than either or both acts of grace. <clears throat> justification means our acceptance with God as righteous and the bestowal of the title to everlasting life. Regeneration is the renewing of our hearts after the image of God. But these blessings in themselves, however precious they are, do not indicate what is conferred by the act of adoption. By adoption, the redeemed become sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. They are introduced into and given the privileges of God's family. Neither justification nor regeneration precisely expresses that. A text that sets forth the special character of adoption is John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave power or authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We become children of God by the bestowment of a right or by the conferring of authority. And this is given to them who believe on Jesus' name. There are a few things to be said, however, about the relation of adoption to these other acts of grace. Though adoption is distinct, it is never separable from justification and regeneration. The person who is justified is always the recipient of sonship. And those who are given the right to become sons of God are those who, as John 1.13 says, were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Secondly, adoption is, like justification, a judicial act. In other words, it's the bestowal of a status or standing, not the generating within us of a new nature or character. It concerns a relationship, not the attitude or disposition that enables us to recognize and cultivate that relationship. Third, those adopted into God's family are also given the spirit of adoption, 
whereby they can recognize their sonship and exercise the privileges that go with it. And because you are sons, it says, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption is the consequence, but this does not itself constitute adoption. Number four, there is a close relationship between adoption and regeneration. So close is this connection that some would say that we are sons of God both by participation of nature and by deed of adoption. There is scriptural evidence that might support this inference. There are two ways whereby we may become members of a human family. We may be born into it or we may be adopted into it. The former is by natural generation. The latter is by legal act. It may be that the scripture represents us as entering the family of God by both, by generation and by adoption. However, this does not appear to be conclusive. In any case, there is a very close interdependence between the generative act of God's grace, regeneration, and the adoptive. When God adopts men and women into his family, he ensures that not only may they have the rights and privileges of his sons and daughters, but also the nature or disposition consistent with such a status. This he does by regeneration. He renews them after his image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. God never has in his family those who are alien to its atmosphere and spirit and station. Regeneration is the prerequisite of adoption. The same Holy Spirit who regenerates is also sent into the hearts of the adopted, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy. But adoption itself is not simply regeneration, nor is it the spirit of adoption. The one is prerequisite, the other is consequent or follows. Adoption, as the term clearly implies, is an act of transfer from an alien family into the family of God himself. This is surely the apex of grace and privilege. We would not dare to conceive of such grace, far less to claim it, apart from God's own revelation and assurance. It staggers imagination because of its amazing condescension and love. The Spirit alone could be the seal of it in our hearts. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. That's from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10. It's only as there is the conjunction of the witness of revelation and the inward witness of the Spirit in our hearts that we can scale this pinnacle of faith and say with filial confidence and love, Abba, Father. Adoption is concerned with the fatherhood of God in relation to men. When we think of God's fatherhood, it's necessary to make certain distinctions. There is, first of all, God's fatherhood that is exclusively Trinitarian, you know, the, the fatherhood of the Father, you know, the first person of the Trinity, in relation to the Son, the second person. This applies only to God the Father in his eternal 
and necessary relation to the Son and to the Son alone, Jesus. It is unique and exclusive. No one else, not even the Holy Spirit, is the Son in this sense. It does not apply to angels or men. In modern theology, it is sometimes said that men by adoption come to share in Christ's sonship and thus enter the divine life of the Trinity. Well, uh, this is grave confusion and error. The eternal Son of God is the only begotten, and no one shares in his sonship, just as God the Father is not the father of any other in the sense in which he is the father of the only begotten and eternal Son. In relation to men, there is what has sometimes been called the the universal fatherhood of God. It is true that there is a sense in which God may be said to be the father of all men. Creatively and providentially, he gives to all men life and breath and all things. In him all live and move and have their being. It is this relation that is referred to in such passages as Acts 17, Hebrews 12, James 1. Since we are the offspring of God, since he is the father of spirits and the father of lights, it may be scriptural to speak of this relation that God sustains to all men in creation and providence as one of fatherhood, small f, and therefore of universal fatherhood. There are other passages in Scripture that might appear to speak even more explicitly of this relation in terms of fatherhood. But when examined carefully, some of them can clearly be shown not to refer to this fatherhood, and others more probably refer to a much more specific and restricted fatherhood. For example, Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? It is not by any means certain that the allusion is to original creation and to God as father of all men in virtue of creation. What needs to be noted in any case is that on relatively few occasions in Scripture is the relation that God sustains to men in virtue of creation and general providence spoken of in terms of fatherhood of God. The term father as applied to God and the title Son of God as applied to men are all but uniformly in Scripture reserved for that particular relationship that is constituted by redemption and adoption. This teaches us the lesson that the great message of Scripture respecting the fatherhood of God and the message epitomized in such a text as, quote, you have not Receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8, 15. Or in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's not that of the universal fatherhood of God, but the message of that most specific and intimate relationship that God constitutes with those who believe in Jesus' name. To substitute the message of God's universal fatherhood for that which is constituted by redemption and adoption is to annul the gospel. It means the degradation of this highest and richest of relationships to the level of the relationship that all men sustain to God by creation. In a word, it is to deprive the gospel of its redemptive meaning. 
and it encourages men in the delusion that our creaturehood is the guarantee of our adoption into God's family. The great truth of God's fatherhood and of the sonship that God bestows upon men is one that belongs to the application of redemption. It is no truer in respect of all men than our effectual calling, regeneration, and justification. God becomes the father of his own people by the act of adoption. It is the marvel of such grace that constrained the Apostle John to exclaim, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. To indicate the, the cleavage that this status institutes among men, he continues, Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Lest there should be any doubt regarding the reality of the sonship bestowed, he insists, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. John had pondered and learned well the words of the Lord himself when he said, He that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So now in writing his first epistle, 1 John, his heart overflows with wonderment at this donation of the Father's love. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. It is specifically the Father's act of grace. John could not get, a, get over it, and he never will. Eternity will not exhaust its marvel. That's from John Murray. A book called Redemption, Accomplished and Applied. In 1955, you can probably get that online. God bless you. Good to be with you today. Glad you're here. Keep coming back. And in between our times together, do look over the website. Find all my North Korea stuff and all my Quran and Muhammad stuff and prophecy. And yeah, when I talk about Quran and Muhammad, I hope you understand I'm not promoting Islam. I'm uh, making you aware of Islam from a biblical standpoint. A lot of through the Bible stuff, a lot of commentaries, uh, just a whole lot on this website. God has blessed me for many years to do this, and I hope you'll continue to do that and bless you too. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.